2: Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke.
3: A bloody flag hung over the door. Cora stepped up onto the platform, surrounded by black drapery that covered the columns of the Mechanics Institute. After all, they were in mourning for the honored dead. The flag didn't represent the Civil War, though. And the blood on the flag wasn't decorative. It was a relic from a dark event that took place a year before. America's first black daily newspaper, the New Orleans Tribune, had called a political convention. The Tribune had been founded by an Afro-Creole doctor named Louis Charles Roudinet as a rallying point for Louisiana radicals, and it commanded respect among the state's reformers. They met to confirm an 1864 state constitution that had stripped power from the planter class and abolished slavery. The backlash, though, was vicious. White planters had the ear of General Banks, the Union Army commander governing the state. They said Louisiana should have, and I quote, a government of white people for the exclusive political benefits of the white race. Yeah, they weren't subtle about it at all. The planters were powerful, though. They convinced Banks to keep the plantation system, and he used the Union Army to force black Louisianans to keep working the land of any planter who would declare loyalty to the United States. His soldiers marched the roads, capturing anyone who left their work. Meanwhile, he let imprisoned Confederate soldiers walk. But the black folk on the sharp end of these policies didn't go quietly. The Tribune started by publishing articles showing how Banks was forcing workers to keep living in slavery. It was a voice that would echo back across the Atlantic, where Victor Hugo would return with a letter to the Tribune encouraging the radicals to keep fighting for justice. Messages came from across the last horizon as well. The spirit of John Brown appeared to Henri and the Cirque Harmonique with a word of celebration. He praised the Tribune for its defense of black equality. So in 1866, when the Tribune announced a convention to amend the earlier constitution and finally give black men the right to vote in Louisiana, people came in crowds. And the meeting started on a hopeful note, too. But that first night, the city's police fought with a group of armed delegates who were defending the convention and killed two of them. Sadly, it was a dire omen of what would happen the next day. When black delegates to the convention arrived at the Mechanics Institute the next morning for the second day of the meeting, they were confronted by a crowd of white opponents that was swelling with anger. Here's historian Emily Clark.
2: The day begins with some fanfare. There's a little parade of black New Orleanians marching to the Mechanics Institute to celebrate this. This is going to be a great day. But it's not. It ends up being an absolutely horrid, horrid day because a white mob aided by local police and firefighters, storm the building, and massacre many of the delegates inside. Most of the delegates were unarmed, but that white supremacist mob was heavily armed. Over 40 people died that day, almost all of them black. Violence like this in 1866 ended up galvanizing a new brand of reconstruction politics nationally, which then worked harder to promote black civil rights
3: In the wake of the violence, someone had collected the tattered flag and tucked it away. When the community gathered to hold a memorial service for the convention, they brought it out again. It was a stark reminder of the nation they were working to build and of the courage and sacrifices some had made to bring that nation, that Louisiana, that New Orleans, into being. It was exactly a year later that Cora stepped into the Mechanic Institute to honor those who were killed that day. Afterwards, the Tribune published her poem's call for solemn, mournful bells to ring out over the city. Nathan must have been proud, but when he wrote to the Rochester Express to give them news on the progress of Reconstruction, he wasn't praising Cora's powers of oratory. Instead, he was reporting on a new scourge in the city. People were fleeing New Orleans in the face of two deadly diseases, cholera and yellow fever. Nathan, so often traveling those streets as he rallied for change, came home one night in late September feeling dizzy and shivering with fever. By October 1st, it had burned through his body. Henrietta, less than a year old, wasn't strong enough to fight off the infection. By October 15th, they were both dead. Grieving her losses, Cora retreated back to the Northeast. The future that she had envisioned with her radical husband had been taken away. If Cora was going to find peace, as so many others like her had wanted, it would have to come from the most unusual of places the spirits of the dead. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. Benjamin Butler led the charge. During the war, he was the general in command of the Union forces that seized New Orleans. When he returned to Massachusetts, he was elected to the United States Congress. During the time that Nathan Daniels was in Washington, he had connected with Butler, who had once been his superior officer. In Washington, the two men lobbied together for Reconstruction. But they were opposed by Andrew Johnson, Like General Banks, Johnson's opinions were swayed by the powerful interests of Southern planters who still wielded enough influence to reach into the White House. It was the compromises that President Johnson made, and his veto of bills supporting the newly freed Black Americans, that put him in General Butler's crosshairs. After all, Butler had never been shy about fighting Southern white leaders he considered traitors to the nation. They considered him evil. They called him Beast Butler. When President Johnson was impeached, Beast Butler was the ringmaster who choreographed the events. In the years before she went to New Orleans, Cora had been the spirit advisor to radical congressmen just like Butler. They pushed for reconstruction policies that put the government of the South in the hands of northern reformers. Lincoln's spirit had spoken through Cora frequently and guided their approach to policy, alongside dead Boston abolitionist ministers and the spirit of William Wilberforce. Now that she'd returned to the Capitol, with grief stripping her of any shyness she might have had, she took bolder steps than she ever had before. In September of 1868, she joined a spiritualist newspaper editor in confronting President Andrew Johnson directly, barging right into his White House office, As soon as the door closed behind them, Cora opened her mouth and laughed, but the voice wasn't her own. As the papers reported it, Johnson was, and I quote, Dumb with astonishment, because the laugh was Abraham Lincoln's. The voice that followed said, Let him laugh who wins. No one in the room, not Cora, not the reporter, not President Johnson, explained what the phrase meant. But it was just months after Andrew Johnson had been impeached by the House, and the country was facing the new election that would put Grant in office. Cora's spirit address to Johnson was cryptic, but there was no doubt that she wanted to confront the president with the knowledge that the spirits had not given up on the nation, and anyone who opposed their vision for reform was destined to fail. In May of 1869, Cora was still thinking hard about that nation, and she was seeing it with more and more distress. After mourning the violence of white supremacy in New Orleans, she came back to Washington with new words of rebuke. She spoke in a meeting of the Universal Peace Society, and she wasn't gentle. A government that has for nearly a century enslaved the African race, she said, that proscribes the Chinese race, proposes to exterminate the Indian race, and persistently refuses to recognize the rights of one half of its citizens, women, cannot justly be called perfect. If Cora was thinking more expansively than ever before about how the U.S. government treated and controlled its people, we can see why. She had just married for a third time. Her new husband, Samuel Tapin, was a spiritualist, a journalist, and a soldier who had been deeply involved in uncovering the truth of a brutal mass murder of the Cheyenne and Arapaho people in Colorado, known as the Sand Creek Massacre. Samuel had investigated the killing for the federal government. He determined that the commanding officer of the Third Colorado Volunteer, a Methodist minister nicknamed the Fighting Parson, had deliberately carried out the slaughter in cold blood. As far as Nathan could tell, this was a minister who had hoped that by killing enough of his indigenous neighbors, he could raise his public profile high enough to make a run at political office. Nathan's reports went back to the federal government, and they went to the spiritualist press as well. His opinions resonated with Korah's. Christians, he wrote, professing to be followers of the Prince of Peace, had instead attacked Native nations with sword and cannon creeds and whiskey, Bibles and Bowie knives. And he wasn't just talking about one incident, either. In Samuel's eyes, if it wasn't the steel of sabers and rifles threatening the indigenous nations, it was the steel of the railroads cutting through the land. Monopoly, he wrote, is fast turning this western garden of the world into a moral wilderness. Over the next few years, his opinion would be published frequently by the Banner of Light, His stature rose within the government at the same time. Ever since his work investigating and testifying about the Sand Creek Massacre, Samuel had served on the Indian Peace Commission. In that role, he helped to negotiate treaties with the Plains Nations. After that, he joined a separate commission, one tasked with making sure the United States government followed those treaties. He had little success, though, which only made him more angry. When Samuel Tapin married Cora, she was reporting messages from Native spirit guides like Weena. Together, the couple joined their voices to shape spiritualist opinions about the ongoing seizure of Native land across the West. In fact, some seance circles even reported messages from Cheyenne and Arapaho leaders who had died at Sand Creek. Here's historian Ann Browdy.
0: Spiritualists are always reformers and they are very active in indian rights reform movements they are extremely critical of massacres of indians they protest against them samuel tappan in particular who is an indian rights reformer
3: with leading spiritualist speakers like cora regularly giving addresses on indian rights and government officials like samuel tapen publishing in the spiritualist newspapers Spiritualists continue to find themselves criticizing violence that was widely accepted in white communities across the nation.
0: Spiritualists are in an odd position, in my view, where they are espousing Indian rights, but they are also perpetrating stereotypes that place Indians in the past, in a romantic past, where Indians are appropriately living in the spirit world and providing support for spirit mediums, rather than exercising sovereignty in the present.
3: But if the early seances portrayed Native spirits as guides and healers for white spiritualists, the tone changed as reports of more violence reached seance circles in the East— When murdered leaders arrived to speak at séance tables during the reports of genocide and dispossession of the 1860s and 70s, Indian blessings on spiritualists were replaced by Indian curses. Curses on a nation whose soldiers and citizens had murdered them. But as other newspapers fell in line with the white supremacist rhetoric of writers who pushed the idea of manifest destiny, the Banner of Light continued to print criticisms of that message, It was their responsibility to heed the voices of the spirits, after all, and report their messages to the reading public. Something was happening. Spiritualists who had viewed slavery as a sin that left a stain on the nation had begun to see America's westward advancement into the territory of the Native Americans as just more of the same. Their editorials called U.S. policy a fraud and a swindle at a time when few other voices would. As violence piled on violence, Cora and the radical politicians who heeded her spirits were sure that this was just one more way that the nation needed to be knocked down and made new again. But to take those stains away, they needed more than hope. The letters burned so bright that they lit up the whole room. They were right there scrawled into the very surface of the table too many spirits had spoken through so many tables over the years to even count but this marble surface looked like it was inscribed with fire the word was a single greek name demosthenes it glowed as a calling card for the stately figure dressed in a tunic solemn and graceful who stood before victoria woodhull she recognized him of course It was one of the spirits who had appeared to her from time to time over the years, and he'd always told her that she would rise to great distinction in a city of ships. At last, he had arrived to reveal his identity to her, because the time had come for her to lead her people, just as he had the ancient Athenians. Journey to New York, the spirit told her. There was a house waiting for her there, along with the future he'd always promised. At least, that's how Victoria told the story. That marble table had been in a Pittsburgh apartment, where Victoria had been staying after years of traveling with James Blood. She had even been to disease-stricken New Orleans, arriving just as Cora left. And shortly before Christmas in 1866, Victoria and James had published an advertisement for their powers of healing to the city's ailing residents. They'd been to Memphis, Tennessee, which had also been plagued by white supremacist violence that year. Then they returned to St. Louis before moving on to Chicago, where the courts were more willing to hand out divorce papers than anywhere else in the Midwest. But now, in 1868, those trips were coming to an end. It was time for Victoria and James to build something. They weighed their options. Following the spirit of Demosthenes to New York was one, but there was another leading light that they considered. Victoria reached out to some friends in high places, she traveled to Galena, Illinois, and visited one of the officers who had commanded James Blood's troops during the war. Since then, Victoria and James had spent time with that officer's father in Cincinnati and become friends with his family. And Victoria thought it would be nice if he took on James Blood as his personal secretary. Because, you see, that man was Ulysses S. Grant, and he had just won the presidential election. He was headed to Washington. We can't blame him if he didn't want to bring blood with him to the White House, though. You see, his escapades with Victoria had already hit the papers, where they were saying that the gallant colonel had abandoned his family and thrown away his money to travel the world with, and I quote, the Witch of Washington Avenue. When Grant decided against taking James' blood with him, it settled the matter. James and Victoria set out for New York instead, but the choices that Grant would make while in office would still prove crucial to lifting Victoria's fortunes. First, though, there were connections to be made in Manhattan. Here's author Mary Gabriel.
4: When they arrived in New York, you know, they had no connections there. And it was, as you say, the entire Claflin clan followed. And so Victoria and Tenney got to work doing what they did best, their only sure way of making money, which was working as spiritualists. And Tenny was an expert of laying out of hands, and Victoria was the spiritualist advisor. And Buck Claflin did what he did, which was go out and try to recruit clients.
3: New York had plenty of possible subjects. Spiritualism was strong in the city, after all. But it wasn't just spiritualism that interested Victoria. She didn't want to spend her days entertaining a line of tourists. She wanted to finally put her political vision into practice. For that, she needed a patron, a dedicated supporter with money, and there was one person whose name was floating around the city with the echoes of cash following after it. Cornelius Vanderbilt. His is a name that many of us have heard before. His shipping empire had brought him mountains of cash, but in the years before Victoria arrived, he had felt the sting of personal losses. His wife Sophia had recently died, And he'd lost a fortune in a battle with a fellow Wall Street speculator over control of Western railroads. All of this was well known, but Victoria's father, Buck Claflin, and the rest of the clan that was settling in New York learned something else through their spiritualist network. Cornelius Vanderbilt was willing to hear from the spirits. Spiritualism may have come into Vanderbilt's life through his daughter, who had been a believer for years. By 1864, Cornelius was trying to contact the spirit of his dead father through New York City mediums. By 1868, he was feeling old himself and had already been turning to magnetizers and spiritualist healers for relief from his aches and pains. So, when Victoria and her sister Tenny arrived in New York, the wealthy industrialist found comfort in a young woman whose mode of healing was the laying on of hands. Soon, the sisters were spending a lot of time with Cornelius. He often invited Tenny to his office and called her his little sparrow, while she joked with him, read to him, and laid on hands. In Victoria, he got a personal medium, and as their conversations multiplied, he found in her an unusual and inspiring energy and intelligence. He also started to hear investment advice from the spirits, and he would give it in turn, along with hefty fees for their services. Here's more from Mary Gabriel. And so they became confidants of Cornelius
4: Vanderbilt, one of the most important and wealthiest men in America. And, you know, it's one of these incredible American stories that, you know, they went literally overnight from being no one in New York to being within the circle where all of the powerful decisions are made.
3: Demosthenes hadn't steered her wrong, and neither had Cornelius James Blood took the money Victoria made from Vanderbilt and invested it according to his advice. And as those investments blossomed, James and Victoria put their heads together to decide how they could put this growing fortune to use. The spirits, it seems, weren't just ghostly visitors from another world, they also knew just what made this world go round. Trouble was brewing. In 1868, the Banner of Light published a report from the Third Annual Convention of the Illinois State Spiritual Association with a foreboding warning. They said that there was, and I quote, "...lack of harmony among spiritualists." For a movement built on the foundation of Andrew Jackson Davis's harmonial philosophy, this was a dangerous thing to hear. Every seance required harmony among the participants in order for the spirits to be heard— And if they hoped to keep growing into an enduring cultural force, they would need that harmony. The reformers might have seemed to win the day and motivate the victorious army through four long years of war. They might even have been able to claim legions of new converts as the widows and mourning mothers found their way to the seance table. But their new world had not yet clicked into place. In fact, cities all across the country were still filled with conflict, and that included the capital. But with President Grant in office, there were some among the reformers who saw a clearer path into the future. In 1869, Sojourner Truth was headed back to Washington, D.C. to be present for the ratification of the 15th Amendment, finally ensuring that black men had the right to vote across the entire nation. On the way there, she stopped in New York City, where she stayed with friends, including a visit to Leah Underhill's 37th Street, Brownstone. Although she had retreated from the public stage, Leah had lost no stature among spiritualists and would still give private sittings to friendly visitors, especially when that visitor was Sojourner Truth. She also stayed with Theodore Tilton, the editor of a powerful liberal religious newspaper. Tilton was well known for printing The Power of God and the Rhetoric of Reform, He was a natural friend to Sojourner, but he and his wife Elizabeth were going to become very familiar with Victoria Woodhull in the coming years. Also, while in the city, Sojourner spoke at one of the most popular pulpits in the nation, Plymouth Church, where the preacher Henry Ward Beecher held court. But Sojourner wasn't the only one on the road to Washington that year. In January, the city played host to the first National Female Suffrage Convention, with money in her pocket and a determination to join the cause, Victoria Woodhull was one of the many to arrive. There was hope in the air. With the War won and Grant elected, surely it was time for every reformer who had served in the cause of abolition to now turn their interest toward the cause of women. Organizers who expected it to be that easy, though, were deeply disappointed. Some leaders, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, wanted to push for a 16th Amendment that would give women the right to vote. But others thought a more gradual approach that pushed for suffrage state by state was the only way to achieve that goal. And this difference in approach led to some ferocious arguments. It seems that advocates for women's rights were no more united than the spiritualists were. And no surprise, they were often one and the same. Victoria made her way back to New York thoroughly unimpressed. To her, the battles between the reformers were what she called teacup hurricanes. Women needed to gain real ground and fast. So she decided that at the first opportunity, she would lead by example. An opportunity that swiftly came, thanks to Cornelius Vanderbilt and Ulysses S. Grant. Here's more from Mary Gabriel.
4: Two of the big traders on Wall Street, Jim Fisk and and Jay Gould, knew that every week Grant sold a lot of gold on the market to try to keep, kind of keep the coffers, the United States coffers, government coffers f- full. And it was a weekly sort of release of precious metals to enrich the government. Through an acquaintance, they decided to try to convince Grant not to sell. And so that would drive up the price of gold and it would become even more precious than it normally was. Well, that happened, but then Grant learned of the scheme. And so in a counter move, he opened the flood again and the gold started pouring out onto the market. Vanderbilt had been privy to all of this. And so he told Tenney and Victoria that this was going to happen. And so on the day this Black Friday in 1869 occurred, Victoria was there buying up gold. It was dropping in price, dropping like a stone. And in that day, she amassed a sizable fortune
3: By the end of the day, Victoria and Tenney had made a stunning $700,000 in profit. Their names were splashed across the pages. Queens of finance, Vanderbilt's protégés. With their new fortune as ballast, Victoria and Tenney threw open the doors of Woodhull, Claflin & Co., the first woman-owned brokerage in the city. Victoria would later write, We had been instructed by the spirits in the administration of public affairs. Now it was time to apply that knowledge, though. And when it came to striking a claim for the place of women in society, she said, There could have been nothing else in legitimate business that would attract the comments of the press more than the establishment of a banking house by two women. Victoria Woodhull had begun the year as the Witch of Washington Avenue, but now she was something more. She was the Witch of Wall Street. Gold was good, but Victoria's vision for the future wasn't the only way the spirits were putting flesh on the bones of the movement. In 1870, Emma Harding would put spiritualism on paper with a landmark history she called Modern American Spiritualism, a 20 years record of a communion between Earth and the world of the spirits. It was a sweeping history that collected stories from across spiritualist networks. Newspapers telling local stories had hit the public from the moment's first days, but this was a project with much larger ambitions. Here's historian Kathy Gutierrez.
0: Emma started off with doing trans lectures, and she was very erudite and very articulate and she over time became what I consider to be probably still the most important historian of spiritualism and she wrote this massive compendium using primary sources which how she collected all of that in the 19th century I have no idea and put it together in what sort of created a coherent narrative of spiritualism.
3: She laid out a picture of the movement, from its first steps to its full strength. It was a play for legitimacy, but it was also a play for authority. If Emma's book was a landmark in driving home the history of spiritualism for scholars, the year it was published was also a landmark in Emma's life. She married a man whose name might sound familiar from the years before the Civil War. William Britton. He was the spiritualist whose kindness had made him stand out from the crowd when he helped Cora to escape the clutches of Benjamin Hatch. And it was as Emma Harding Britton that the English pianist, turned transmedium, turned religious historian, would go down in the record books. But she wasn't the only one making a bid to put themselves in the author's chair when it came to the story of spiritualism. In the books of one Boston writer who wanted palpable proof of immortality, the question of testing the spirits took on more weight, sometimes quite literally. In fact, when it came to the evolution of spiritualism, the 1870s were the decade of materialization. More and more, seances weren't just filled with tapping sounds, turning tables, and flickering lights. Instead, mediums were bringing something more into being. Physical objects, called apports, were arriving in the room, And then the ghostly hands that had so often been invisible to previous sitters began to take on material form. But if a hand, why not more? Here's Emily Clark once again. You'd find these
2: descriptions from people who are at a materialization seance and they might notice by their feet what looks like a small white handkerchief has appeared and very slowly The handkerchief grows and it turns into something bigger and bigger and bigger and the next thing you know, the spirit of your deceased wife has materialized right next to you. And then she hugs you, or she kisses you, she grabs you, you can feel her material body.
3: It was spiritualism's second wave, and it upended what people expected to see when they went to a seance. Here's historian John Busher.
1: I think about that as part of this notion that the process that was going on in this new era was the elevation of earth to heaven and the drawing down of heaven to earth.
3: Tapping sounds could be misinterpreted. Trance lectures could be explained away. But when a medium conjured a gauzy object into the room that could be seen, that could be felt, well, what could explain away something so tangible? In 1872, the reformer Robert Dale Owen published a book on spiritualism that hit the shelves just as new waves of materialization seances were putting the movement back into the headlines. It was published by a big, non-spiritualist publishing house, too. And it was a smash hit. That's because Robert wasn't just some unknown. He was the son of the Scottish reformer whose utopian towns had inspired so many spiritualist communities in the 1840s. And he'd spent the 1860s in Washington, D.C., where he had served on the Commission for Establishing Government Aid to the newly free Black Americans. Working alongside Nathan Daniels, he helped lay the foundation for the Freedman's Bureau that would oversee efforts like Sojourner Truth's work on the Freedmen's Hospital. In his new book, though, he was stepping deeper into the world of spiritualism. By publishing fascinating stories about his experiences with a medium, who had been off-limits to the public for years. In fact, he'd participated in private dramatic sittings with her, right inside her fancy New York home. And the medium's name? The oldest Fox sister, Leah Underhill. They answered the questions on his mind. In the very first seance, Robert remembered seeing lights that floated around the room. As they did, though, they also slowly grew larger, and at the same time, they took on the distinct shape of hands. One of those hand-shaped lights, he later explained, grew as large as a human head before it lowered itself to the floor and began to pound out those infamous knocking sounds that had become so commonplace in the movement. Finally, that which had been invisible had now been revealed to his eyes. At a smaller, more intimate seance the following summer, Robert had an even closer encounter. They had retreated to Leah's bedroom for the seance. Robert, Leah, her husband Daniel, and one other close friend. Everyone took a seat around a small, intimate, rectangular table, and the knocking started almost immediately. So they turned on the lights and started to sing. Again, a light appeared. Robert said it took the form of a small hand, but covered with a shimmering veil. He watched it approach him and then felt a light touch, like fingers, on his shoulder. When he asked the spirit to move to the door and knock on it, the light wandered off, knocked, and caused, in response, a lapdog outside in the hall to start barking at the sound. The light returned and brushed Owen's hand and then caressed his head. He later wrote that, It felt as if a soft and fine piece of gauze were pressed gently against the back of my head and neck. Not once, however, did Robert detect the footfalls or rustle of clothing that might have been caused by a body moving around the room. No one in the small group of four ever moved or let go of each other's hand around the table. And Robert was convinced. The spirits were bringing heaven to earth, one material body at a time. They were literally reaching out to be touched. Publishing this story made Robert Dale Owen the darling of the spiritualist world, So much so, in fact, that he decided to lean in. He wanted evidence of eternal life that was irrefutable. So when he heard that a spirit, whose whole body had materialized in a Philadelphia seance, had asked for him by name, well, he couldn't refuse. The seances were enchanting. He sat with two mediums, a husband and wife, for a series of meetings with the spirit. As they lowered the lights and went into their trance, the promised specter would appear. She seemed to grow out of nothing. Like the spectral hands, she would start out as a faint light, floating through space until it took form and strode into his presence. The spirit called herself Katie King and gave Robert everything he was hoping for. She audibly spoke with him, calling him Father Owen, and then kissed him. Over the course of their meetings, they even traded gifts. He would eventually possess a lock of her hair he cut from her head, pieces of fabric cut from her dress and veil, a bouquet of flowers, and a small tortoise shell box. Owen rushed to write a report to the encounters. The mediums never moved, he said. There was no chance that one of them was impersonating the spirit of Katie King. While she was manifest in the room, he had explored its corners and the spirit cabinet from which she had emerged, and determined that everything was as it seemed. With his book flying into hands around the country, the Atlantic magazine agreed to publish his account. He sent it to the editors under the title, Touching Spiritual Visitants from a Higher Life. But that's when things went south. Before his article could be published, Robert had a shocking revelation. A young woman went public with the confession that she was the person who had been Katie King in that darkened room. He had given her gifts during the seance. Eventually, Owen met with her in the light of day and she gave those gifts back. She was, in fact, an actor who conspired with the mediums to trick their visitors. Robert even had some help digging up the evidence of the fraud. His agent in pulling together the facts of the case was none other than Henry Steele Alcott, the man who had helped solve Lincoln's murder. Alcott questioned how reliable the woman actually was, because plenty about her story didn't add up. Even so, her confession was devastating. Robert's article was eventually published. Alongside it was a note that made it clear that it was all humbug. And it turned Owen, and spiritualism by association, into a laughingstock. To many spiritualists, though, the events only served as evidence that materializations were fraudulent. They remained convinced that it was the result of predators taking on what was good and true about spiritualism and exploiting it for their personal gain. Things didn't end well for Robert Dale Owen, I'm afraid. In the aftermath of the ordeal, his own family demanded that he turn away from the beliefs that had led to such a public humiliation. But he refused, leaving them with the difficult choice of having him declared insane. When his children were through with him, his life was effectively over. They had him placed against his will in an asylum. her gallery opened in the heart of London. That might not sound unusual at first. After all, it was full of bright pieces of artwork. Watercolors, acrylics, pencils, all of which are familiar mediums. But there was another layer to the display. All 155 works were created by the woman who had opened the gallery, a middle-aged spinster named Georgiana Houghton. In the previous decades of spiritualism in London, most spirit communication was the kind we know. There was plenty of table tapping, table tilting, trance lectures, and spirit writing, but every one of these modes had become old hat. Now, though, mediums and their followers were looking for new manifestations of spirit power, and Georgiana gave it to them. Her wild swirls of color, she said, were the physical representations of spirits. Through her, the invisible world took on vibrant form. Georgiana didn't start out as a public medium, though. When the British press was still calling out mediums as frauds for the simplest table wrappings, she had gone with her cousin to a seance so that she could judge for herself if any of it was true. At the first seance, one spirit singled her out, claiming to be her dead sister, Zilla. The things it said apparently shocked Georgiana into belief. Soon after, she started to read spiritualist books. She talked with her mother about the possibility of eternal life and spirit communication. And then together, they started their own seances at home. One historian called Georgiana, sincere and reverent. She seems to have held her seances in an attitude of quiet prayer. Like the Cirque Harmonique in New Orleans, her seances were private, devotional, and deeply felt. This was far from the stagey showmanship of town hall demonstrations, or the red carpet rolled out at the entrance of a Claflin hospital house. After one seance held at Pentecost, Georgiana wrote that the experience of spirit contact was simply a new outpouring of God's spirit. Rather than being a means of raking in cash, her spiritualist practice almost became her ruin. As the spirits became her muse, rather than just receive messages through taps on the table, she began to paint, and soon the spectral hands of masters like Titian and Correggio were guiding her. Once, she even claimed to fall under the control of Joseph, the husband of the Virgin Mary. With him, she said, the colors were laid on with much more strength. When others started to see her art, she got some of the same unwanted attention that hit Robert Dale Owen. There were whispers that she was mentally disturbed. The weird shapes that filled her paintings were unsettling to some they wanted to get her medical attention. Fortunately for Georgiana, she avoided Owen's fate. That 1871 exhibition in London was put on at Georgiana's own expense. Her ambition was to make spirit drawings more popular, to spread her work as an example for others to follow. By that measure, it was a complete failure. But there were a few newspaper reviews that urged people to go and see her work, and to be astonished. But there was also plenty of contempt, too, and even horror at the hallucinations that she produced. And while many visited, almost none came to buy. Before it was over, she was nearly bankrupt. And seeing the lengths that she went to to advertise the exhibition to Victorian High Society, it's no wonder. She created an elaborate catalog and distributed it to notable names. What's more, she even created a special edition for Queen Victoria— made of pink satin, white calfskin, and gold. She distributed all kinds of advertisements and hired an army to help her with the exhibition. Heavy was the loss, she later wrote, but never for one moment have I experienced a shadow of regret for having undertaken it. I threw myself and my substance, heart, and soul into God's treasury, and not one fraction would I wish to withdraw. There was one bright spot, though, All that advertising spread, that even reached America, and it caught the attention of a few dignitaries from the spiritualist realm, perhaps none more significant than the woman who had helped give birth to the very movement Georgiana's painting celebrated, Leah Fox Underhill. Leah arrived in London just before the exhibition began. In fact, it was her very first stop in the city. As she and her husband Daniel strode into the gallery, Daniel found Georgiana and told her Motioning toward his wife, there goes the first medium in the world. Georgiana later wrote that the two women spoke, although she didn't record what it is they discussed. As other Americans streamed in, they told her that news of her new manifestations had been printed as far away as California. The exhibition might have been a financial failure, but it brought a wave of spiritualist seekers to England from the troubled United States— And it was just one of the many attractions that would make the trip across the Atlantic so popular in the coming years. After all, if spiritualism truly was for everyone, then there was no chance it was going to stay put. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week.
0: Apple card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
3: Next time on Unobscured. Once the spirit of a woman arrived at a seance and simply said that she was one who suffered. The explanation of that suffering could have been printed by Victoria Woodhull. This nameless woman was born to a wealthy family, she told the Circle, but she married a predator. He scooped up her inheritance and then abandoned her. In the years that followed, she had supported herself through sex work, but found no one to help her until she crossed into death. Now, she said she was comforted by Mary Magdalene. In New Orleans, at the seance table of men, her radical message came across clearly. A society that would judge and punish women for surviving abuse was unjust. A society in harmony, however, would look like something new, not a hierarchy, but a circle, where the poor were lifted up, and men and women joined hands to seek out the wisdom of the past and map out the future. And it was a future Henri and the others were still willing to fight for. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.
2: Obscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.